Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's an overcast and gloomy day today, but what you're about to hear is Class 4, Part 1 of a class I taught at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007 on the Buddhist Eightfold Path. It starts off with um, a little quiet meditation and a loving kindness. Um, uh, so it it takes a while to get going, just a few moments. Uh, uh, and then the discussion is focused on mindfulness meditation. So, without further introduction, this is Class 4, Part 1 of a class I taught at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007. May those of us who have come together tonight, in mind and heart, be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May our parents, our partners, our brothers and sisters, our friends and relatives, all the people we don't know, all the people we don't like, May they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. From the highest realm of existence to the lowest, may all beings arisen in any of these realms with form and without, with perception and without, with consciousness and without, May they too be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. May they also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life.
May the suffering ones be suffering free. The fear-struck, fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief. And the sick find health, relief. So how did those words sound to you? Did you feel comfortable with the words? Could you think of any words you'd rather have instead? Did we leave anybody out? <laughs> okay. My chocolate lab. I'm sorry? My chocolate lab. Dog. Oh, yeah. Dogs, cats, fish, and birds. Okay. How about parents, partners, and pets? Sort of, you know, that'd be good. So that's that's a great way to start your day. Just a few moments in the morning, you know, and just let those thoughts of loving kindness arise, and uh, and then you know, face the day. And then after you've you know driven on the freeway and gotten through work and and uh, met the adversity of the day, then to end your day with that. It's just sort of like, okay, I'm not going to let everything go. I'm not going to, I'm going to let go and let love. And, and then I, I find I really have nice dreams if I do it before I sleep. That, that it sort of sets up my, my dreamscape, if you will. That's very cool. Okay. Yes. The way I, I sort of interpret that, Being that we're not asking God to do anything. Um, so often Christian prayer, I find, is is asking God to do something. Mm-hmm. 
and this made it more, I'm the one that's changing, not God. Uh, I'm being invited to be this loving, kind Christian. Yeah. And so if loving, if things are going to happen that are kind and loving to other people, if I'm in any role in that, it's because I'm doing something. Mm -hmm. It's not because I'm asking God to do something for them. Yeah. That's right, Mike. That's exactly right, yeah. It's very much a, a personal responsibility uh, issue there. And, and if you notice, I started with me, in this case the class, may we, but when I'm doing it, may I be happy, peaceful. And then it starts for me outwards. And then we get the people, the you know, parents, partners, and pets. And then finally, you know, all the creatures that can't see, don't have consciousness, don't have perception. We, we try, we just go out and include everybody. And it does, it does, if, if you do this often enough, it will change the way you relate to people. And in the Thai forest tradition, this is what, this is the protection they have against all the creatures in the jungles that they meditate in. That they are told, if you really love the tiger, he won't eat you. And if you love the snake, he won't bite you. And so the monks don't have weapons. They don't even have defensive weapons. They, they have loving kindness. And it would take great faith and courage for me to go into the Thai forest and just have that as my only protection. But over thousands of years, it's proven to have worked. And um, I suppose if it's between you and the tiger and you love the tiger, he may love you back and go to the next person. <laughs> it's interesting. It's the power of love. And, and the Buddha cho uh, proved it to be true when a, uh, an elephant was attacking him. Uh, he was made drunk by Devadatta, his, his uh, cousin, who wanted to kill the Buddha. It, this only makes the story that much better. And so he got the elephant drunk, and the elephant was charging the Buddha, but the Buddha, through his loving kindness, was able to subdue the elephant. And it didn't harm him. And, and when I first heard those stories, I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, if, if you have an adversary and you really love that person, they're going to pick up on it, whether you say or do anything. They're going to they're gonna sense there's something different about you and your relationship to them. So this, this stuff does work, you know. And uh, it's very interesting. Uh, but it takes courage to... Give it a try in your everyday life to go to that boss that you don't like and love that person. You know, maybe even ask them how their day's going. You know, it's yeah. So concentration, we 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 studied that last week. We the four jhanas, the five characteristics, deep states of concentration, past and future dissolve into the present moment experience of our life. We are, are sitting with perfect equanimity, which is the end result of concentration. It's great. But now we're going to talk about mindfulness. And I think the thing that makes mindfulness so much different is the fact that the Buddha rediscovered mindfulness, and it was mindfulness that allowed him to achieve nirvana. It wasn't concentration. And so how is it different? How is it the same? Uh, concentration is very much a... a um, an intentional forced activity. You are sitting and you are forcing with will, you're forcing 
your attention to stay focused on the sensation of breath, as we used last week. And it's there. And every time it wanders away, you forcefully bring it back and you hold it there. And there you are. And that's your only job, to hold that attention on the, on the sensation of breath. But now, we're going to go and get a much more relaxed way of looking at that. And we're just going to use awareness rather than will or intention. We're just simply going to be aware of stuff that's going on, like Reverend Echo talked about last week. Can you just sit and be aware of everything that's happening without identifying yourself as the one who's aware? Like, ah, I hear the sound. But can you hear the sound and not say, I hear the sound? Can you identify, not identify, with the activity of listening or seeing or touching or smelling or tasting or thinking? Can it just happen with no one thinking and no one seeing and no one hearing? Can, does it occur? And of course you'd have to say, yeah, it does occur. Even if I'm unconscious in the hospital, it said I can still hear people praying for me. You know, at some level I can still hear it. Even though ego or self is unconscious. So hearing occurs if we have an ear and a mind and a body. It, it works. So now I'm going to take a really big risk and read a little bit. And I tell you what, reading out loud is something I used to do in sixth grade. You know, so it's not something I do on a regular basis anymore. And it's always challenging. Uh, but we'll see how I do. And actually, I'm nearsighted, so I can read better without my glasses. Concentration and mindfulness are distinctly different functions. They each have their role to play in meditation, and the relationship between them is definite and delicate. Concentration is often called one-pointedness of mind. It consists of forcing the mind to remain on one static point. Please note the word force. Concentration is pretty much a forced type of activity. It can be developed by force, by sheer unremitting willpower, and once developed, it retains some of that forced flavor. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is a delicate function leading to refined sensibilities. These two are partners in the job of meditation. Mindfulness is the sensitive one. He notices things. Concentration provides the power. He keeps the attention pinned down to one item. Ideally, mindfulness is in this relationship. Mindfulness picks the objects of attention and notices when the attention has gone astray. Concentration does the actual work of holding the attention steady on that chosen object. If either of these partners is weak, your meditation goes astray. Concentration could be defined as that faculty of mind which focuses single-mindedly on one object without interruption. It must be emphasized that true concentration is a wholesome one-pointedness of mind. That is, the state is free from greed, hatred, and delusion. Unwholesome one-pointedness is also possible, but it will not lead to liberation. You can be very single-minded in a state of lust, but that gets you nowhere. 
uninterrupted focus on something that you hate does not help you at all. In fact, such unwholesome concentration is fairly short-lived, even when it is achieved, especially when it's used to harm others. True concentration itself is free from such contaminants. It is a state in which the mind is gathered together and thus gains power and intensity. We might use the analogy of a lens. Parallel waves of sunlight falling on a piece of paper will do more than warm the surface. But the same amount of light, when focused through a lens, falls on a single point and the paper bursts into flames. Concentration is the lens. It produces the burning intensity necessary to see into the deeper reaches of the mind. Mindfulness, on the other hand, selects the object that the lens will focus on and looks through the lens to see what is there. Concentration should be regarded as a tool. Like any tool, it can be used for good or ill. A sharp knife can be used to create a beautiful carving or to harm someone. It is all up to the one who uses the knife. Concentration is similar. Really deep concentration can only take place under certain specific conditions. Buddhists go to a lot of trouble to build meditation halls and monasteries. Their main purpose is to create a physical environment free of distractions in which to learn this skill. No noise, no interruptions. Just as important, however, is the creation of a a distraction-free emotional environment. The development of concentration will be blocked by the presence of certain mental states, which we call the five hindrances. They are greed for sensual pleasure, hatred, mental laziness, restlessness, and mental vacillation. We have examined these mental states more fully in Chapter 12. So if you're curious about that, Chapter 12. A monastery is a controlled environment where this sort of emotional noise is kept to a minimum. No members of the opposite sex are allowed to live together there. Therefore, there is less opportunity for lust. No possessions are allowed. Therefore, no ownership squabbles and less chance for greed and coveting. Another hurdle for concentration should be mentioned. In really deep concentration, you get so absorbed in the object of concentration that you forget about the trifles, like your body, for instance, and your identity and everything around you. Here again, the monastery is a useful convenience. It is nice to know there is somebody to take care of you by watching over all those mundane matters of food and physical security. Without such assurance, one hesitates to go as deeply into concentration as one might. Mindfulness, on the other hand, is free from all these drawbacks. Mindfulness is not dependent on any such particular circumstance, physical or otherwise. It is a pure noticing factor. Thus, it is free to notice whatever comes up. Lust, hatred, or noise. Mindfulness is not limited by any condition. It exists to some extent in every moment, in every circumstance that arises. Also, mindfulness has no fixed object of focus. It observes change. Thus, it has an unlimited number of objects of attention. It just looks at whatever is passing through the mind and does not categorize. Distinctions and interruptions are noticed with the same amount of attention as the formal objects of meditation. In a state of pure mindfulness, your attention just flows along with whatever changes are taking place in the mind. Shift, shift, shift. Now this, now this, 
And now this. You can't develop mindfulness by force. Active teeth-gritting willpower won't do any good at all. As a matter of fact, it will hinder progress. Mindfulness cannot be cultivated by struggle. It grows by realizing, by letting go, by just settling down in the moment and letting yourself get comfortable with whatever you are experiencing. This does not mean that mindfulness happens by itself. Far from it. Energy is required. Effort is required. But this effort is different from force. Mindfulness is cultivated by gentle effort, by effortless effort. The the meditator cultivates mindfulness by constantly reminding himself a gentle way to maintain his awareness of whatever is happening right now. Persistence and a light touch are the secrets. Mindfulness is cultivated by constantly pulling oneself back to a mental state of awareness. Gently, gently, gently. Mindfulness can't be used in any selfish way either. It is non-egotistical alertness. There is no me in the state of pure mindfulness. There is no self to be selfish. On the contrary, it is mindfulness which gives you the real perspective of yourself. It allows you to take that crucial mental step backward from your own desires and aversions so that you can look and say, Aha! So that's how I really am. I'm going to stop there for a second and and tell a story which I told last night in the Wednesday night class. And it's a story about me and and how I've changed because of meditation and Buddhism. And somebody asked me last night, well, Krishna, how did you get involved in meditation? What... What was your entry into meditation? And I said to them, well, it really started when I went to the gym for the first time and started to work out uh, three days a week. And I realized that the effort necessary to change my body had a lot to do with my mind. And sometimes in the gym, I was doing bench press, and, and a very heavy weight seemed to feel like almost no weight at all. And other times... With the same body and the same weight, it seemed an impossible task. And I said, isn't that interesting how much my mind has to do with my body lifting the weight? And that got me to thinking. And that got me to the bookstore. And that got me to buy a book on meditation. And it wasn't Buddhist meditation. It was sort of like non-denominational, new age kind of meditation, which was okay. And I thought it was really interesting But that was the beginning of my journey of transformation. And then they were surprised and shocked to hear that at one point in my life, I was actually a member of the National Rifle Association. And I was a Republican. And I wore polyester flowered shirts. And I used a whole lot of hairspray, so my hair always looked good. And they said, well, did the meditation change the way you looked at yourself? And I said, well, the awareness I had of myself changed dramatically as I meditated. I started to look at myself and say, who am I really? You know, what, why do I think and do the things I do? It became a very personal investigation. And 
I realized that I was very much affected by peer pressure. That all the people I hung around with uh, liked shooting guns. And we didn't shoot people, we just shot targets and stuff. And, 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 so, and then a lot of us were very conservative politically. And those were the people I hung out with. And so that's how I was, because I liked those people. And, and then I found out about hippies, you know, and I found about, out about Aldous Huxley, and I found out about Esalen, and I went, wow, there are so many different ways of looking at the world. And, and I had limited myself in looking at it just one way, in a sort of a very black and white way, that this was right and this was wrong. And I must say it was very comfortable and sort of easy to be that way. But it wasn't authentic, I was starting to see. I was starting to see that I had much more potential. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to change myself. I'm going to be a different person. And I started to look around and see the kind of people I wanted to be like. And so what I did, I went and bought some cotton shirts. That was my first, my first effort at changing myself. Button-down collar. You know, polyester, not anymore. And, and then I came to the conclusion that I really couldn't change myself because the problem was with the I. The I was limited. The I didn't have the experience or the perspective necessary to make the changes I wanted to make. The I, the self, the ego, was a limiting factor in this case. So I couldn't change myself in the way I thought I wanted to because I needed to change the I first. So what I found was that meditation was the condition necessary to transform the I, the self, the ego, which allowed a lifestyle change. And, and gradual, and it was a gradual change and along the way, I lost some really good friends because they said, why are you selling all your guns, Kusla? Well, I don't need them anymore. I'm going to buy a bow and arrow. I just read Zen and the Art of Archery. I want a, I want a bow and arrow. And I bought one. I went down to Rancho Park and I, they have a wonderful archery range there. And I would light some incense and I'd get the bow and arrow. and I, I'd wait for the arrow to find the target. It never did, but um, but I learned a lot about myself, and and I started to see that yeah okay I had to give up my membership to the NRA, I, I went all the way to the left and became a Democrat, and now I've come center and become an independent, and and I started to understand what the hippies were talking about, and what they wanted to do, and they wanted to create little communities you know and and sort of like not be mainstream and 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 create what they wanted, what their mind wanted them to create. And, but when I looked at their lifestyle, I'm thinking, I don't want to work that hard. They're growing all their food. They're taking care of all the kids. They're washing all the dishes. They're working 24-7. I don't want to work that hard. I don't want that lifestyle. But the self, this ego, whatever that, that mechanism is, meditation started to work on that. And I started to gradually look at the world differently. So uh, now, you know, I dress funny, don't have any hair at all, you know, really simplifies my life.
but I couldn't change my life. I needed to make conditions available to change life. I needed to put some conditions in place. I needed to put. I needed to have Buddhism. I needed to have a greater sense of don't know in my life, and and I needed to be involved in different areas of life that I had not been involved in, like volunteering at juvenile hall or state prison or the police department or UCLA, and challenge myself. How is that going to feel to walk in there and say, okay, I'm a chaplain. I'll be glad to help. And then what do you do? <laughs> How do you help? How do you look at yourself as you're in that process? So what they're talking about in a very special way is, is this transformation that occurs when you become aware of yourself. Not in a critical way, not in, in the way of evaluation, but in just simple raw awareness of the process of what you are. And can you define it? Can you ever really get down to the nitty-gritty and say, this is who you are? Well, in Buddhism, they would say, when you get that far, you become empty. There's no one there. And if you get that far in your meditation practice, and you're in a monastery, and you have people helping you eat and doing your laundry for you until you become somebody again, so you can function in a regular way, that's good. So it can be pretty scary to go into nobodiness and not know who the heck you are or what it all means, you know. So um, I'm of the mind that it's important to be somebody before you start working on being nobody. And if you start working on being nobody too soon, you don't have somebody in place to help you through the tough parts. And I used to work with a guy who took LSD when he was a teenager. And he would just have fun with it. And I realized that his personality wasn't as fully developed as it might have been. And that could have been one of the reasons. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, when Ram Dass, Richard Alpert, or Timothy Leary took LSD, they were like in their 40s. And, they, and this was like an experiment. They were pioneers. They were, they were investigating consciousness in a radical way. You know, they weren't kids having fun. So somebody was already there, and then they transcended that. They transcended ego and had these direct experiences of uh, no self or not self. But then they came back. And, and they always came back. Sometimes they didn't come, come back with all the stuff they took with them, but they always came back. And so in this meditation practice, if you're, if you're 12, it's probably too early to get to this level. I, I think we need to, to be somebody, and now we need to, to then see who we are and see if that's who we want to be or see if what kind of opportunities we have, what kind of options do we have that we didn't have before when you start working on yourself. So I went, you know, from polyester to cotton. Very cool. I was much more comfortable. <laughs> so I just wanted to stop there and just add that, that, that this is a very interesting journey. We're really starting to look at who we are and, and our relationship with ourselves and others.
in a non-judgmental, non-critical way. And awareness allows us to come to a place of acceptance. You know, come to a place of acceptance. Yes? Is this something to be done alone, or is this something to be done with a, a spiritual older brother or sister to sort of guide and, and, and balance things off of? Yeah, that's a great question. I talked about that Tuesday at UCLA. Thank you. One of the students said, do I need a teacher to do this path? And if so, how do you find a teacher? What is a teacher? And for me, it sort of worked like this. Uh, I have two teachers as far as I'm concerned. I had one for two years and one for 17 years. Those are my two main Dharma teachers. Um, the one for 17 years, I lived right across the street from him. He lived at the center where I practiced and eventually moved in. So I had, I had a lot of access to him. And what I found uh, with my relationship with him was is I would ask him a lot of questions. Well, you know, um, is this a good book to read? Is, what does this sutta mean? You know, I've been, I experienced this in my meditation practice. What would a Buddhist monk call that? Is that progress? Or am I going crazy? You know, it's, you know, it's nice to have somebody to be a reference point for you. Um, I also found that as I progressed in my understanding of Buddhism and my practice of meditation, that I need different kinds of teachers along the way. You know, there's some really good beginning teachers, and there's some really good advanced teachers. And I, I thought to myself as I practiced my guitar, you know, gosh, wouldn't it be cool to have a lesson from, you know, Eric Clapton? invite him over and say, hey, can you just show me some of your stuff? But I realized that I'm not there yet. He could show it to me. I couldn't do it because I don't have the practice or the experience yet. So some teachers are really good to get you started. Some teachers are good for the middle. Some teachers are better for the end. Because when you start getting towards the end, it's so subtle. And, and if you don't have the previous experience or practice, you're not going to understand what they're talking about and be able to use it. Do we need somebody who's ordained? Actually, we only need somebody who's been doing it longer than we have. You know, and, and sometimes somebody who's just doing it is fine, too, because it gives you something to bounce off of. You know, you both might have the same experience, and then you can sort of talk it out. Well, I wonder what that means. I'm going to buy a book. I'll let you know. Page 34, that's what it means. Okay, and so it can work that way, too. If you don't have a teacher... If you don't have a spiritual friend, if you don't have a sangha, a group of people who meditate, you might end up in uh, you might end up in Chicago while you're trying to get to New York, because you don't have a sounding board. And I'll give you an example from my life. My father, my father was married twice, and but towards the end of his life, he lived alone. And he became a pack rat. He just everything. He used to tape TV shows just to, I guess, have something to do. Boxes and boxes of Mary Tyler Moore on tape, audio, you know. And when you talk to him, he would come off with some stuff that you could, I couldn't believe. Why do you think that? Where did you get that from? He had nobody to talk to. He created his whole world in that house he lived in and watching those TV programs and listening to that radio. And he knew it was this way and that way. 
And I saw how important it is to be part of the community. You really need to get out and have somebody criticize you occasionally or encourage you occasionally because you're not going to know if what you're thinking and doing is in line with everybody else. You know, So if you're involved in Buddhist spirituality, it's nice to have a couple of Buddhists in your life to sort of get the idea rather than just imagining what Buddhists do or imagining what Christians do. So I would say, yes, it's really important, especially uh, if you're having problems or if you have a lack of interest. If you just become lethargic and, well, I'll do it tomorrow and it doesn't matter anymore. You know, so those are really important time to have somebody in your life saying, hey, it does matter. You've been meditating now for 10 years. You let all that go? Come on. You know, or if you're having some real difficult issues, you just can't quite get it. There's something wrong. You know, it's just, and there's this paradigm clash occurring. How it used to be, how it will be, and now they're fighting. Is the world flat? Is the world round? What side of the argument shall I go? And he just, you know. And all it sometimes takes is one word or one book or one paragraph, and it puts it all into place. I have literally gone to Bodhi Tree Bookstore, the used bookstore, dealing with something for three, four months, running through my head, can't figure it out, bothering me. Ask people they don't know. Pick a used book, just open it, read a paragraph, and that's it. Literally, that was it. That's exactly, and all these little building blocks sort of fell into place. I went, wow, okay, that's over. Now the next one. <laughs> and it's just like, so you never know where the answer is going to come from. But we need people in our life, that's for sure, and spiritual people, if you're on a spiritual path. Do you find that to be the case in your own practice, too? Yeah, yeah. Good. Okay, now, what is this mindfulness meditation? Why is it so different? And what's the outcome? Because in, in concentration meditation, we wanted to go deeper and deeper and become more one-pointed, and all of a sudden, nothing existed except our object of meditation. But in mindfulness, we don't want to go that deep. We want to have momentary concentration rather than forced concentration. We want to have a greater sense of awareness we want to be able to see the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom in our meditation practice. And they are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. We want to see those in our meditation practice. There are four kinds of mindfulness meditation. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects. I'm going to talk about mindfulness of sensations. The Buddha said we have three sensations. They are pleasant sensations, unpleasant sensations, and neutral sensations. Those are the three kinds of sensations that we have in our mind, in our body. Our job as meditators doing mindfulness of sensations is to become aware of as many sensations as possible. And one of the techniques they talk about is sitting in meditation and scanning, doing a full body scan with your awareness. And you'd start at the tip of your head and work down to the end of your toes. And you just start scanning, looking for any kind of sensation. 
And when you're in the head area, you could look for maybe emotional sensations or mental sensations or happiness, sadness. But when you're in the body area, you could look for like little pain, discomfort, or pleasure and bliss. That's part of it too. And you just start scanning. And then when you found one, you would categorize it. You'd note it. You'd say pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Now, the thing is, most of the time, we're not going to be aware of neutral sensations. They don't get our attention. Only the pleasant and unpleasant get our sensations. So that just leaves us with two. So we have these two giant categories, pleasant, unpleasant. And you're just going down, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. And now you have accumulated all these sensations in one category or the other. Now the job of the meditator is to reflect on all of those sensations and apply these three aspects of Buddhist wisdom to those sensations. And so the first one would be, were all the sensations I became aware of, were they impermanent? Were they in a state of flux? Did any of them exist at the same intensity for the whole time I was aware of them? And so you would go back and you'd say, well, you know, sitting on the floor, my knee really started to hurt. I became aware of this really unpleasant sensation. And then you start to say to yourself, but you know, it wasn't really always, on, you know, it seemed to almost have a vibratory nature. It seemed to get like a little more uncomfortable so it could get my attention. And then when it got my attention, it would sort of get like a little less. And if I took my attention and placed it elsewhere, it would get stronger so it would get my attention again because it wanted me to do something. It was trying to tell me I needed to do something. And what it was trying to tell me was this. If you don't move your leg, Kusla, you will die. And that's the only level it could work at. And if I lacked the attention necessary, it got it back. It kept calling back to me. Pay attention to me, Kusla. You're going to die if you don't. Now... To give you another personal example, when I was a volunteer in Lancaster, California, at the state prison up there, I would ride my motorcycle up there. It's about an hour and a half, windy, twisty roads, wind blowing, hot summer days, cold winter days. And because I was on a motorcycle, and because it was such a long distance, sometimes I felt the need to relieve myself. And, and I happened to notice that I'd just be paying no attention to my body and watching the road, and all of a sudden, my body would say, you got to go to the bathroom, buddy. You know? Hey, there's a turnoff right over there. Look, there's a gas station. And i just keep riding, you know? And, and it would go away for a while. I noticed it would go away for a while. I said, okay, I can make it. I know I can make it. And sure enough, I couldn't make it. Because it would come back, and it would even be have a greater sense of urgency to it. Kusla, you need to go right now. Hey, there's a tree right over there. Just pull off. And I'm, okay. Marking my territory. But it's like it needed to get my attention and it wouldn't let me go until I paid attention. And, and that's how I found those sensations in my meditation practice, that none of them existed 
at the same intensity very long. They would sort of go up and down, up and down. Sometimes they almost seemed to go to different parts of my body. If I wouldn't pay attention to the sore knee, maybe I'd pay attention to the sore arm or shoulder. And it seemed to, you know, change locations. And they would say, hey, come on, you got to pay attention to me. Okay. So I came to the conclusion, and rightly so, that all the sensations I became aware of were in flux. They were ever-changing. None of them existed very long with the same intensity. And then I applied that insight to the world around me. Is there anything in this world that exists without fluctuating? Is everything in an ebb and flow greater and lesser? Is anything stable out there in the world? You know, and, and I looked and I looked and I thought and I thought, couldn't find anything. Sometimes the concepts of things seem to be more stable and unchanging than the things themselves. But ultimately, those concepts change as well. The world is round, the world is flat. 55 is a good speed to go, 65 is a better speed to go. You know, everything was changing all the time. Sometimes coffee was good for you, sometimes coffee wasn't good for you. So it just allowed me to see that the Buddha was right when he said, everything is in a constant state of flux. And it started with my meditation practice, and then I applied those insights to the world around me, and it's self-validated. Okay, so I got one down, and I've got two to go. Now, the second Buddhist wisdom is every one of those sensations was ultimately going to be unsatisfactory. Well, in the beginning of my meditation practice, that was absolutely true. I didn't have one satisfactory sensation. I just hurt all over, all the time, mind and body, agitated, uncomfortable, stiff. Why am I doing this? And then I kept up with it, and I started to have some very pleasant sensations. Oh, very nice. Almost to the point of wanting to meditate even more so I could re-experience all those wonderful sensations that I finally had a chance to experience. But you know what the problem was with those wonderful experiences? They, too, were impermanent. They, too, changed. And because of the first insight, the second insight becomes true because of change. Even the good stuff in our life becomes unsatisfactory. So ultimately, everything turns out to be unsatisfactory. The bad stuff immediately, the good stuff eventually. Okay, two Buddhist insights down, one to go. The most difficult one of all, for me at least. And you know what? It's 8.30. Let's take a break. We'll keep the tension there, <laughs> and we'll get back into the third insight. Good, thanks. Well, that's it. That was Class 4, Part 1 of a series of talks I gave at Loyola Marymount University in the spring of 2007 on the Buddhist Eightfold Path. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. 
If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. Buddhabooks.info. Um, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>